classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. This is our last new book discussion episode that we are airing in 2021. And I think this is a pretty fun one to leave off with. I think so, too. I really love this short story. I was thinking, so I was listening to it on audio in the car today. And I was thinking, okay, so when we talk about our previous readings and our general thoughts at the top of the show, what am I going to say? I lost track of how many times I've read this short story because it's just been so many. And it just, it feels like such a natural part of my journey as an English major and teacher. I probably read it, you know, multiple times in high school in college, in grad school. I know I've taught it a few times and I think it's probably the same for you. Yep. Yeah. I I can't really remember the first time I read this either, um, but it definitely is a classroom staple in like, it's kind of the definition of that. And because it's a short story, like you said, it pops up in so many different types of classes. Like I definitely have read this in theory classes where we practice applying different critical lenses to this story. I'd read it in American literature classes, in women's literature classes, and then I've taught it in multiple contexts too. There's just so much you can do with this story. So on this reading, was there anything that was different for you or that popped out or did you feel differently about it compared to the countless other times that you've read it? (laughs) Um, I don't know. (laughs) Not, not particularly. I mean, I guess it's been a long time since I've read it without teaching it. And so I, I think I could get wrapped up in the story a little bit more instead of trying to figure out which parts I was really going to zoom in on. Um, This is a great story for teaching close reading. And so often I would read this story with a fine tooth comb and really be looking at what passages are we going to close read and analyze together? Um, What are we going to talk about with the imagery and the diction and all that? And that's a really fun way to read this story. But this time I just, I guess I got a little bit more invested in the story and in the character's mind, the narrator's mind, which is is really fun. It is kind of a all-consuming story if you let it be that. How about for you? I think it's more of a horror story. Totally. And so I downloaded an audio performance. Let's see. I want to get the narrator right. It was performed by Mackenzie Mentor. This was on Hoopla. It was a, you know, like 25 minute read if you listen faster. Um, And it was really, really well done and really good. And I felt like 
it's probably not the first time that I've listened to it because I would often use audio in the classroom, especially for short stories, just as a reading resource for kids. But it, you know, mostly, like you said, I was reading it and doing close reading for whether I was a student or a teacher. And so listening to the story felt especially eerie. They had just a little bit of background music and sound effects, like just a touch to make it, you know, just a little bit spooky, not to overdo it at all. Her reading wasn't overly dramatized. I thought that the tone that she struck was really interesting. So it was really interesting to me to listen to truly a performance of the story and see what I got out of that. And I feel like no matter how many times I read it or no matter which context, I always, you know, there are some classic like answers that I could give, but I always end up thinking something different or questioning something. And the ending never fails to absolutely creep me out completely. Oh, totally. And I feel like the ending is something I've never felt like I have a firm footing with. I also love what you said about horror because we just had a great conversation with Raylan Torngren. You can find that on our podcast feed if you haven't listened to it yet, an episode all about horror fiction. And it's not that I've never thought about this as horror before, but reading it so shortly after that conversation definitely shined a spotlight on some of those elements for me. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's subtle horror, right? And we'll talk about the tone of this story. And it's so internal. It's really psychological horror. But yeah, same. I feel like that conversation totally colored my reading experience in a new way. And I really like thinking of this as a horror story. It illuminates a lot that I think when you're just reading it as like, let's read this as a feminist text, or you're just reading it as like, let's see how a great short story is constructed. You don't get, you don't get the goosebumps as much, which Mm -hmm. is part of the fun of this one. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, let's give just a general setup for this story. The Yellow Wallpaper was published in 1892. It first came out in New England Magazine, and then later that decade it came out in in book form. It's written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, although I think when she first published this, she was Charlotte Perkins Stetson. So if you see that name on the short story, that's why. The setup is basically a couple rents a country home because the wife is ill and getting out into uh, a little bit more spacious environment is supposed to be good for her health while she rests and recovers. And the story is told entirely from her perspective in basically secret diary entries because her husband doesn't want her to write. And That's all the setup you really need because the story then is about the journey through her psychology and through their time together at this house. 
Yeah. And it's, it's great like suspense and horror because slowly you pick up on more and more clues as to what's been ailing her as to her relationship with her husband, you know, what exactly is going on. And, you know, historically, if we get a little bit of context, which, you know, usually if we're teaching this in the classroom, I think the context is more fun to give after (laughs) with kids. Yes. So that they know, um, so they can experience the story first, but the rest cure that sort of like, Oh, all you need is a vacation was a very common prescription that is particularly male doctors were prescribing to female patients who were experiencing what we know today as depression or anxiety or any other mental illness. And doctors said, oh, you just need to rest. But pretty Early on in the story, I think one of the most interesting parts, it's like within the first couple of paragraphs, our narrator, who doesn't have a name, we don't know who the narrator is, it's very Mm Rebecca-like, is talking about how, oh, we get this mansion for ordinary people like us. This is, you know, a pretty big deal. And John, her husband, is a physician. And I think like the first inkling that you get that something is off and something is really wrong here is the narrator says, John is a physician and perhaps, (laughs) and then in parentheses, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And I think that that is the very first indication that we get where it's like red flag, some alarm bells ringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, she goes on to say that her brother is also a physician and he doesn't believe her either. And she repeats frequently this phrase, what can one do or what is one to do? And it really just shows, like you said, this ominous tone where she's not being believed by the men in her life who are not just related to her and kind of in control of her that way, but they have titles that (laughs) allow them to prescribe and determine what is true or not. Um, And it also shows kind of her complete feeling of of helplessness, that just repeated phrase of of what can you do. And her tone is not panicked about this. So everything is very matter of fact and, you know, pretty serenely told. It's not, you know, we get the impression like you, we know she's sneaking paper and she's sneaking these, you know, journal entries, but you know, from the get go, you're not getting like, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Because they Mm -hmm. don't believe me. It's just a very like matter of fact, this is the situation. Um, and it's, you know, it's, clear that the narrator hasn't been um isn't diagnosing herself Mm -hmm. but just that she knows something is wrong I am ill in some way they can't give me the answers and they don't believe that I'm sick Mm -hmm. and her her very casual like personally I disagree with their ideas Mm -hmm. and 
it it sets up an interesting character because she's not completely passive, but she's not completely panicked, right? She she doesn't agree with them. She thinks that doing some work would help her. She is sneaking paper to write, but she still basically in some ways is just shrugging her shoulders and going along with what they're saying, which I think I think makes for a really realistic character where you don't have somebody who's just a total pushover believing everything she's told, but you also don't have this like these huge acts of resistance going on. Yeah, she's keeping the peace Mm -hmm. and doesn't want to argue. She does say, I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes, Mm -hmm. and she attributes it to her condition rather than what he's putting her through, which we slowly get more and more clues as to how exactly she is is living. In the first couple pages of, of the story, some of the, the great writing that we see here from Gilman is her descriptions of, of the house. She thinks the house is absolutely beautiful, but then she describes it in these kind of creepy ways, which is fascinating. She has some romantic tendencies and she likes to think that maybe it's kind of a haunted house. And I love the way she talks about the garden as a delicious garden. Um, That kind of ravenousness that she feels, this like desire to take it all in. But then she quickly switches to saying that while she loves the house, she hates their room. And of course, we get a description early on of the the title element of the story, the yellow wallpaper. So I don't know, Chelsea, what do you think about the way she describes this this room that she says must have been a nursery or a playroom previously? I think it's really important that she thinks it was a nursery Mm -hmm. because of the way that she's being treated like a baby. Mm -hmm. And it's, oh gosh, it's not just the wallpaper description. It's Mm -hmm. the heavy bed and Mm -hmm. the barred windows. And you just really get the impression that this is not a typical room. Well, here's how she describes the um, wallpaper It's, um, her descriptions are just so good in this story. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John. (laughs) (laughs) I know I love those moments where it's uh-huh. like, oh, someone's coming. I need to put this away. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic imagery. And just, I mean, this is the perfect story to teach diction and word choice. Just there's so much packed packed in there. I don't know. Yellow is such an interesting color choice because it has so many different connotations. Like I think that there is there can be these connotations of sunshine and and joy and liveliness and and all of that 
But there's also kind of connotations of maybe like sickliness. She she says she describes it as a sickly sulfur. And then you get the like odor imagery coming through as well as if the wallpaper could could give that off. And she asks John to renovate the room and change it. And he's like, well, if you change the wallpaper, then you would want to change everything else about the room too. And basically says no. So it's not just, you know, partly it is their vacation place, right? It's not like this is their normal residence. Um, But every, uh, every turn, every time that something happens like that, where she's talking about the room, someone's reaction is different to the room. It's so easy to go to the symbolic right away. And think about from the beginning of the story of the room as her mind. Because mm-hmm. that's a totally pretty common and valid reading of it. And I don't know, it's really hard to escape that once that's kind of lodged in there. And then as you get more of the descriptions and you see this start to spiral downwards, um, that reading just stands out right away. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the the literal and the figurative here lends itself so well to the feeling of of horror. Um, even how she describes what really, to me, gets into her like mental state is when she describes the patterns in the wallpaper as like curves and lines that look like they are like committing suicide is what she says. Um plunging off at angles, destroying themselves in unheard of contradictions. And you just, you can't escape the idea that this room represents so much of where she is emotionally. So, okay, as we move through the story, we pick up on more of that sort of like I have different ideas about how I should be taken care of, but this is what they're doing to me. And we know she thinks she would feel better if she could write, but she's often just too tired to do so. She thinks she would feel better if she could have socialization and hang out with everybody and entertain people, but nobody will let her out of the room. Everyone just makes her rest. And it you start to see this vicious cycle of nobody letting her do the things that she thinks would make her feel better. I think one of the interesting parts of this story is that it is not just John keeping her in the room. It is also John's sister, Jenny. Mm -hmm. And we get frequent mentions of Jenny coming into the room, touching the yellow wallpaper, um, Basically, just, you know, she's supposed to be taking care of the narrator. But I think on this reading or this listen, I paid much more attention to Jenny than I typically would. And I found that really interesting that Charlotte Perkins Gilman has not just John and not just the doctors and not just the men in this narrator's life keeping her locked away. But there's also this other woman who is keeping her there and their interactions really stood out to me this time. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially if we want to think about this through kind of a, a feminist lens. It's not 
just the men keeping her under lock and key or uh, oppressing her her desires and her wishes. Yeah, and we start to pick up bits and pieces about, oh, the children are away and then they, you know, want to come in for a visit. There's a baby. Mm-hmm. The narrator starts to talk about a baby. And so we get some indications that the narrator might be suffering from postpartum depression specifically. Mm-hmm. And I just, the way that it's all of these slow reveals is so artful and so good. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I love about this story. Yeah. That, the fact that there are children or at least a, a child, there's a baby is a major reveal. I think in in part because of historical context and and what we we can talk about towards the end of the story about hysteria and cures for hysteria and all of that. All right, so let's dig into some of this yellow wallpaper. Yes, because it this is a short story. I don't know if I would say it's on the long side or the short side, like I said, I listened to it in like 25 minutes. I think it's pretty average. It's pretty much in line with a post story mm-hmm. as far as length, but it just, the spiral can feel pretty fast mm-hmm. when, when you're reading it. And the spiral from the narrator saying like, I don't like this wallpaper. It's sickly. It's disgusting to seeing a woman in the wallpaper crawling around to interacting with the wallpaper, to talking about the wallpaper in a different way and noticing other things around the room like bite marks and splinters and things like that that don't bother the narrator, Mm -hmm. but the wallpaper bothers the narrator. (laughs) It just spirals so quickly into the wallpaper becoming this really creepy, ominous thing. And of course, I think as nerdy English teachers we go to symbolism but it also just contributes to the horror element of the story like that's I I struggle to differentiate between is it the horror of being confined Mm. is that the horror element or is the horror the creepiness of the the wallpaper and sort of the um it's becoming sort of animated. I think it's both. And as a reader, I think it's both. It's being confined in the narrator's mind as well, where we don't get to escape the way she sees what's what's happening. That obsessiveness with something that is uncanny and terrifying and something she hates to me feels very much part of like the the horror element as well it's it's something she both like finds revolting and and disgusting and and detests but she cannot stop thinking about it and looking at it and then eventually it becomes her like one real companion and she becomes very possessive of her wallpaper she doesn't want jenny to look at it or touch it um it's it's all consuming. And that feeling is part of the horror to me too. I love the part where she catches Jenny. She also catches John <laughs> looking at the wallpaper. Yeah. And she uh-huh. it is fascinating how she's like, no one can look at this but me. Yes. Um, 
But Jenny says the paper stained everything it touched and that she found yellow smooches on all of the narrator's clothes and on John's clothes and that she wished they would be more careful. Careful for what? Like, right. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. I, I love her use of italics too. And, um, Slightly before that paragraph, she says, I I have watched John when he did not know I was looking, which is also creepy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses, and I've caught him several times in italics looking at the paper, (laughs) and Jenny too. Um, I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. It's about the possessiveness, but it also, as a reader, kind of makes you wonder, like, are John and Jenny seeing some weird things in the paper too? And I think mostly because I read this story from a psychological lens, I I think no. But I think it's fun and fine to read this story from like, this is a haunted house (laughs) lens. And to ask, are these other characters seeing something terrifying, but then lying to the narrator about what they see and what they're experiencing? I love that reading too. Yeah, that's a that's a really fun reading. But I agree with you. I probably fall more in line of the psychological and almost wonder if they're touching the wallpaper is like, are they actually starting to get close to understanding her mental illness? Mm-hmm. Are they getting close closer to asking the right questions of her and she's still wanting to be private and pushing them away. I think there are lots of different readings that you can have with that. And with Jenny particularly, she's, she's the one. So, you know, it's kind of offhandedly mentioned like, Oh, John's, I catch him looking at the wallpaper sometime, but Jenny is the one who's like touching it. And is the one who says, I've found yellow around. Mm-hmm. And the narrator is, you know, more possessive or angrier at her for getting so close. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, is is there the possibility of an understanding between these two women mm-hmm. that just can't be broached because Jenny is siding with John the whole time and is in turn oppressing his wife? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the theme of like doppelgangers and doubles in Victorian Gothic literature. And so I think that reading of Jenny is a really good one. So then what happens is the the woman in the wallpaper kind of breaks free of the wallpaper and the narrator starts seeing her elsewhere. So uh, she says, at one point, I think that woman gets out in the daytime. And I love that she refers to her as that woman. And I'll tell you why. Privately, I've seen her. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It is the same woman, I know, for she is always creeping. And most women do not creep by daylight. Great line. <laughs> so good. Yeah. The repetition of the word creep and creeping is fantastic. It's also just so opposite from what you think of when you picture a Victorian woman at mm-hmm. that time period. You imagine someone, you know, in a corset, entertaining or walking around the house back straight, head up. 
you don't imagine sort of the like skulking around corners or um, like creeping on the floor. Eventually we get some crawling action Mm -hmm. and it's just so completely opposite from that image of sort of the angel in the home that we Mm -hmm. talked about with Jane Eyre that really like buttoned up prim and proper Victorian woman Creeping just feels so far removed from that, that I think it makes it all the more eerie and scary. Yeah, she kind of alludes to that when she talks about how the woman is like constantly hiding. And she says, it must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. And then I always lock the door when I creep at daylight. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you're like, well, what What does she mean by that? What is she doing? I don't know. I don't know. And I, I love that feeling of not knowing. Oh, she also, so in addition to like seeing this woman creeping all over, there's a smell. Mm-hmm. We talked about that smell in the early description. But... She is like trying to figure out the odor of the wallpaper and she finds this like smell following her everywhere. And she even says, I thought seriously of burning the house to reach the smell. And then she's like, now I think I'm used to it. What is the smell about? I don't know. I don't know. It's like, I mean, once again, like, it's just, it's all consuming. It's so, it's so oppressive feeling. Like, the story is very claustrophobic, and I feel like the smell contributes to to that. Like, even, you know, even if she closes her eyes and can't see the wallpaper or the creeping woman, it is still in her um, through that that smell the the idea of burning the house down makes me think of course of of Jane Eyre I love how in conversation the story feels with Jane Eyre um as well as of course with with Rebecca with the unnamed narrator but also with John the husband who reminds me so much of Mr. DeWinter with his condescending, infantilizing comments. He calls her a blessed little goose. He calls her little girl. Um, It's very uh, infantilizing. I mean, yeah, he just treats her like like a child, which the nursery element is important there as well. That was a tangent, but I just, that burning the house down is part of what puts this story into conversation with this larger context of women's literature and is another reason that I I love this piece and it's such a staple. All right. I think we should make our way to the ending. Yes. <laughs> We've talked about the unnamed narrator, the tone, the other characters, what we think the wallpaper might be doing, and some of the historical context. And we've talked about how this story really spirals quickly and spirals to this ending that is so fantastically creepy. So I I think where it starts to get scary for me, at least, is that she locks the door. She throws the key down to the front path and she's waiting for John. And she says, I want to astonish him. She says she has a rope 
Jenny didn't find the rope and she is going to try and catch the woman in the wallpaper. And she's trying to move the bed, but the bed is basically nailed down. And she starts peeling the wallpaper as well. And just basically, I it's it's just so creepy from there. The wallpaper is sort of like reacting with her. You can kind of imagine some of the noises that she starts making. She says all those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growths shriek with derision as she's peeling the wallpaper. She's hearing things. She's seeing things. And it just gets so scary from there. It's so creepy. <laughs> just the, I think you did such a good job of pulling quotes to paint that that visual for us. Um, because I, I, I think it does move so fast at the end that sometimes I, as a reader, want to just rush through and get to the ending. But that imagery of her pulling the wallpaper down and what she sees and hears and smells in it. And there are just all of these these questions that I mean the the way she she writes too is so staccato at this point. Mm-hmm. She jumps from from thought to thought, from plan to plan that you can't really follow what she is is trying to do. You get really disoriented in in the story. The women start multiplying. She says there are so many of those creeping women and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did. And that is one of the first times where she really conflates herself with the woman in the wallpaper. And not only does that add to the sense of of horror, but the, the multiplying women, her association with with the women starts to expand the story beyond this like haunted house tale to a question of, you know, how many women are experiencing this entrapment and where are they going and, and how, how she kind of desires to help them, but also fears how many of them there are. I totally agree. And I just, Every, from about this section on, it feels like every sentence is something that could be dissected and interpreted. Yes. (laughs) Like, for instance, she says she is angry enough to do something desperate and jump out of the window, but Mm -hmm. the bars prevent her. And she says, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. Mm -hmm. So you see, there is still this part of her brain that is thinking of the Victorian strictures placed around her as a woman and still thinking about like how people will perceive her actions, which is wild. But then, you know, she's talking about how she can't go outside because she would have to creep on the grass and everything is green instead of yellow. Mm -hmm. So she has to creep around the room. (laughs) So it's just, it feels like every sentence is jam packed with meaning. Um, and you know, goes back and forth from this, like you, it's almost like she has a little bit of self-awareness and then you see it. Oh no, she doesn't. She is totally far gone. Mm Mm-hmm. I also love in that quote you read and in another one you referred to earlier that she uses the word angry so much because I I think that, I mean, that there is a lot in this story that, you know, 
connects us to the ideas of depression and anxiety. But there's so much in here about anger. Not that anger can't be part of depression and anxiety, but I think that that's not necessarily the first emotion we think about when we think about this. When I think about the story, anger isn't the first emotion I think about. When I think about depression, anger isn't the first emotion I think about. But it's such an important part of this story. And I love that it's that she refers to that so directly, that this is about a woman who is really pissed off um, about what's what's happening to her. Yeah. And, you know, there are levels to that, too. Right. I mean, pissed off at society, which you can totally read this as sort of commentary on that. But also, I mean, as someone who is about to have a baby soon, I've done a lot of reading on postpartum mood disorders Mm -hmm. and rage is a really big part of Mm -hmm. postpartum depression and anxiety. And we haven't talked about this quite yet, but Charlotte Perkins Gilman, it's believed that she had postpartum depression and was, you know, forced into sort of the rest cure. And so thinking about her experiences and her writing from her own experience really is powerful. And just thinking of the rage in that context, it makes this story ring true in so many ways that, you know, yes, we can read it as almost an allegory or we can read it as social critique. We can read it as a horror story, but it also could be really close to what her experience was. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get to the very ending because this is always so confusing and eerie. So she's been freeing all of these women in the wallpaper by tearing the wallpaper down. She is creeping along the room. She says, here, I can creep smoothly on the floor and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall so I cannot lose my way. And then John comes to the door and uh, she tells him that she'd thrown the the key to him. Um, He's begging her to open the door. She says that she can't. He's the one who has the key. Uh, Finally, he, he opens the door and he says, see, you know, we can imagine what he sees when he opens the door. And he says, what is the matter? For God's sake, what are you doing? I mean, speaking of anger, <laughs> he doesn't have a great bedside manner here. I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane. And I've pulled off most of the paper, so you can't put me back. Now, why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. It's so good. I just, I I like to leave it there. I don't, it's almost like, I know we're going to chat about it, but I almost (laughs) just don't want to interpret it because it's so deliciously creepy. Mm -hmm. And to think about that last line, I had to creep over him every time. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Like Mm -hmm. every time she made it around the room, what that every time gets me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't have an answer. I love that that's the last phrase of, of this story. It 
it makes this story like go on in perpetuity. I mean, I think that is one of the things about this work is it's haunting because it doesn't really have a definitive end. It just, you, you just envision it continuing on and on whatever every time means. Um, she had already kind of conflated herself with the women in the wallpaper, but here you see it fully happen where she says, I've gotten out and you can't put me, put me back. Um, which is just so interesting because it, it happens so quickly while at the same time being kind of clearly where the story is going this whole time, the, the conflation of her, of her and the woman in the wallpaper. Oh, it's so good. I think it could be almost read as a triumphant ending. That sort of like break of freedom. I'm out. You can't put me back. I'm out at last. But she's still in that room. Mm -hmm. The door is open. He is down and can't do anything. But she's still, you just imagine her crawling around in circles and circles and circles, never ending. And I think that really says something about, uh, to me on this reading, (laughs) it says something about how, yes, when you remove sort of those societal structures that are pinning her down, when you remove her husband from the equation who isn't listening to her, when you remove these things, she still has a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it to me, you know, reads as the story is not just about like these structures that are placed on Victorian women and the freedom that Charlotte Perkins Gilman wishes for, or, you know, what writing might do for women, but also there still isn't a cure for her mental illness. She still goes on suffering. I think that is such an important point because I think that we contend, and I know I I contend in some of my readings of Victorian lit and, and books that feature and discuss the idea of hysteria, to think of it as all symbolic. But in this story in, in particular, we really see that while while yes, like these presumptions about how women's minds and bodies worked contributed to ideas about their their mental health and and worsening their conditions, that these conditions were real. It it wasn't all in their head, like to 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 label things just as, you know, symbolic of patriarchal structure, et cetera, is another way of dismissing their lived experiences and the stories that that women like Charlotte Perkins Gilman are telling. And so I think that's hugely important um, thing to come back to at the end of this story. And while, you know, I would like to say, oh, things are so different today. They're not as different, I think, as we might like them to be in terms of that, um, where it's like, um, well, yes, like everyone is anxious and stressed out because the planet is dying or 
because we're in a, we can think of all of these societal things going on and we can think of things in our daily lives, you know, getting more sleep, um, you know, eating more vegetables. Like we can think of all of these things that contribute to general wellness, but when someone has a mental illness, they have a mental illness that needs to be treated. Um, and I think that, you know, even today we still see a lot of dismissal and we still see specifically if we're going to talk about postpartum mood disorders, we see a lot of dismissal in the medical community and in society at large. And I just think for as creepy as this story is, for as much as it feels like it's so of its time, it is far more relevant today than I think we would prefer to think. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that point about dismissal, women not being believed or taken seriously when they talk about their their physical pain or um, mental and emotional struggles, so, so relevant today. And you alluded to this, that Charlotte Perkins Gilman did suffer from what now I think we would look back and likely call postpartum depression, although it is hard to look back and diagnose somebody. But she wrote a little something about this this story because she said that she's always asked why she wrote it. And she said she didn't write it to like drive people crazy, which is how it was often read. And it's true that as a reader, when you kind of get into the narrator's mind, um, you you start feeling what she's feeling and and experiencing what she's experiencing um in a way that that kind of rattles you as a reader too but she said that she actually wrote it to save people from this fate because her hope was that doctors would read this story and realize how terrible the rest cure was. And I don't know if this is true or not, but according to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, her doctor read this story and decided to stop prescribing the rest cure for his patients. And I I think that's really, really cool that she like had this. And of course, like we always have to take what authors say about why they write with a grain of salt. But um I, I love that idea of her like writing fiction for for social change. I love that story. And I also love the way that writing is treated in this short story. I think it's something that is easy to overlook, but that can certainly be plucked out. The narrator mentions frequently. We know she's writing in secret, but she talks about frequently, like, I think I would feel better if I write. We know she's writing this down for a reason and sort of that power of women being able to put voice to their experiences and pen to paper, that power that can come from that is also just a strong current in this story that I think, like I said, can be easily overlooked for all of the other elements, but is really fascinating to me. All right. Well, when we talk about short stories, we always go quite a bit deeper. And so we have been talking about this for a while, and I think we should get into our pairings. Chelsea and I are each going to offer two pairings for this short story today. There were so many directions we could have gone in. I struggled 
with this. Um, not even because I had too many, but just I I had to limit myself to what I was thinking about with this story. And there's just so much. So I'm really curious in what direction you went, Chelsea. What is your first pairing? Okay. My first pairing is Talking Back, Thinking Feminist, Thinking Black by Bell Hooks. And this is a more academic nonfiction pairing. And I, first I thought it was just important to bring in a Black woman's voice. Um, This story very much addresses when we talk about Victorian womanhood, especially this story, we're specifically talking about white women's experiences. But when we talk about women not being believed in the medical community, not being believed for their pain, I think it's just so important to talk about intersectionality and how race and class plays a significant role in that as well. Um, So Bell Hooks, one of the foremost feminist thinkers, I think is a great person to bring into this conversation. But specifically in talking back, thinking feminist, thinking black, this is more about... um, how Bell Hooks really feared this perception of madness or going mad. And basically, she says that madness is the destiny of daring women born to intense speech. And she was really taught to kind of like silence herself when she wanted to speak up or have this certain way of talking that actually diminished her experiences and that this is just really common for for women to have that you know like constantly downplaying their speech and talking in a certain way that just downplays their their rage or their passion or their emotion um and so in this text hooks basically connects that sort of like speech that could be considered madness because women are telling the truth and are speaking up and are speaking in a certain way. And then um, how the impulse to kind of reclaim that shapes her as a thinker and as a writer and just gives her a new way of thinking about writing and sharing her work. So I think that this really pairs well with the writing piece of the yellow wallpaper, which I love to pull out. That part just really fascinates me on each reading. But also just that notion of madness and that notion of madness being part of defiant speech and the importance of words and the importance of how we speak really fascinates me. And this just strikes me as such a fascinating pairing. So again, that is Talking Back, Thinking Feminist, Thinking Black by Bell Hooks. My first is nonfiction as well, but very different. It is a memoir. My first pairing is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, we covered a Machado short story on the podcast about a year ago, and I definitely recommend going back and listening to that because I think that story would actually be a really good pairing for the yellow wallpaper as well. Um, but in this memoir, it is a, a memoir of psychological abuse and an abusive relationship that uh, Carmen Maria Machado was in. Um, She describes like the full 
picture of this relationship from meeting this extremely charming but volatile and cruel woman who um, she becomes completely, they become completely absorbed in each other's lives. They, they move in together. Um, and, and the woman is, is horribly uh, abusive to, to Carmen. And as that, as she paints us a picture of that relationship and that story, the house as a real place where she did not feel safe um, and did not feel at home becomes very important, both literally and figuratively. And she she uses the the house in similar ways to, that we see in some of this, these classic works of fiction where the house represents the mind, but also shows how important the literal safety of having a home that feels welcoming is. Um, I I just think that this book is, is really incredible at depicting that kind of pain and mental struggles and, and abuse. And I think we could look at the yellow wallpaper at, as a story of psychological abuse as well. Um, so that's one connection. While In the Dream House doesn't really focus so much on writing, the writing in this story, in this book, is a huge reason to pick it up. Each chapter is told through a different genre focus. So sometimes the genre is haunted house story. Sometimes it's erotica. Sometimes it's choose your own adventure. And so while she's not writing about the way writing is important to her, it's clear that storytelling types of stories, um, the written word is playing a significant role in this memoir as well. So that's another connection to to the yellow wallpaper. So I, I think this is one of my favorite memoirs I've ever read for its force and its creativity. And I highly recommend picking it up. So that's In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Such a good one. I love that book. Okay, I have one more nonfiction, but then I promise I'll offer some fiction for our pick of the week. I think Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, this is by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, makes an interesting pairing here particularly because they do quite a bit of research on women's bodies. Um, And something that I always think about on every reread of the yellow wallpaper is just the way the medical community has not advanced that far since the Victorian era in terms of women's health and the understanding of how different hormonal cycles change your brain chemistry, change your physicality, change the way you respond to diseases, respond to stress. And I just, there still is not enough research on that. And so burnout is the research that many of us need. Um, And so this really goes into detail about how burnout is different for women because of those hormonal different cycles that we go through. 
and also how society contributes to burnout specifically for women. And so I just think this makes an interesting pairing um, for many reasons, but mostly that piece of just how the medical community and how our research on on things like stress and bodies is still so male dominated as far as like su- test subjects. I think a lot of us even saw this with the COVID-19 vaccines where all of a sudden women were like, oh my goodness, my period is a little funky after I had this vaccine. And it was like, oh yeah, because nobody actually thought to study that as part of the initial trials. Um, and so it it took some women to say like, okay, well, let's gather the data then. Um, that's just one of many examples these days, but reading the yellow wallpaper always brings that to the front of my mind. I think Burnout is one of those books that you can totally, it's one of those nonfiction books I think you can skim a lot like and get a lot out of it. You can get a lot of really good practical advice. You can even listen to some of the podcasts that Emily and Amelia Nagoski have done and get the gist of Burnout and Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And I think it's just a book that a lot of us could use right now. So again, that is Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. I liked that book and I love how at the end of each chapter they have like key takeaways <laughs> because you really can kind of move through it quickly and take what you need from it. All right. My next pairing is something that I am in the middle of and I usually don't do this, but this is a new release that I'm really enjoying and think would be a really good fall read. I like it's I like it as a pairing for the yellow wallpaper. And I'm just hoping that the last 50% doesn't really disappoint me, (laughs) but I'll keep everyone posted. It is Mrs. March by Virginia Fado. So this book, it is, I would call it psychological suspense, but it is definitely slow burning. It's about a unnamed woman, I mean, Mrs. we have her name Mrs. March, but we don't get her first name, who is married to an author. So we get that writing element in here. But in this case, it is her husband, George, who is the writer. He has just written a new book that is by far and away his most well-received, his bestseller, and she's incredibly proud of him. She hasn't read the book. She kind of stopped reading his books at some point along the line because she'd read so many of them. But one day she is at the patisserie picking up their favorite baked goods and the woman at the counter says, oh, you must be so, so proud and kind of asks her, like, how does it feel to be the the muse or the inspiration for this book? And Mrs. March is like, what? (laughs) I don't think this character is based on me. The character is a cold, shrill prostitute. And I have like, there's there's nothing of me in that story. And the the woman kind of profusely apologizes. But from that point on, Mrs. March cannot stop thinking about that comment. And she can't stop thinking about how her husband 
sees her and how everybody else sees her and who she thinks she is versus who other people think she is. She is an extremely judgmental character and begins to kind of assume that everybody around her is just as judgmental of her as she is of everyone else. And it just really gets in her head. And as a reader, we really get in her head. She is not as sympathetic of a character as the narrator in the yellow wallpaper. She's not nearly as as passive. She's largely unlikable. But just that kind of spiraling energy um, reminded me so much of the yellow wallpaper. And in this book, I think we have a lot more questions about how other people are actually treating her versus in the yellow wallpaper. We know the narrator is being treated terribly. In this book, we aren't sure, but she thinks she is being treated terribly. And so there, this book in many ways is quite different from kind of what we experience with our yellow wallpaper, yellow wallpaper narrator. But there are so many connective tissues there just to who the narrator is and what she spends her time thinking about. This book also has a lot of references to Rebecca and I think is largely based on or inspired by Rebecca. So it would be, you know, a, a great pairing for for that as well. And if you enjoy Rebecca, I would pick up Mrs. March, but I think the connections to the yellow wallpaper are just as fascinating. And it's going to be made into a movie starring Elizabeth Moss, which will also be great. I think this one would be just a book that a lot of our listeners would enjoy picking up for the fall. So that is Mrs. March by Virginia Fado. All right. It is time for picks of the week because our short stories only get short pairings. <laughs> so let's sprinkle in a little bit of extra. Think of these as both. Um, think of these as bonus pairings. Sarah, what would you also offer as a pick of the week or a bonus pairing for the yellow wallpaper? I'm going to offer the movie Gaslight. Um, which is a great classic film. We might have paired it with something else before, but it just is so similar to and speaks so much to the yellow wallpaper. Um, Gaslight is a story about a couple <laughs> who have this kind of world whirlwind romance. They move into a house together. Uh, the wife starts noticing strange things happening around the house. The husband doesn't believe her. And then there are lots of secrets. It's where our term for the psychological abuse of gaslighting comes from. And so it's like kind of a core foundational feminist text, much like the yellow wallpaper. Uh, I think there's quite a bit of gaslighting happening in the yellow wallpaper. And so I think it's a great pairing. And it's a it's a for me as like someone who can't watch things that are too scary, this like classic horror, classic domestic suspense is just right for me for this season. So I think it's a great, great watch. Um, classic movie, Gaslight. 
It's a really good fall. Yeah. Movie. And like you said, for someone who doesn't want to watch a horror movie, but still wants to engage in like, I don't know, the the Halloween mood. Mm-hmm. That's definitely one of my favorites. All right. What's your pick? Okay. I have a quick mention and then I have an actual pick. So I texted this to you. I did not end up watching it, but I still think it's really fascinating. And I ended up reading a little bit more about it. Um. There is a theater in Madison, Wisconsin that did a musical adaptation of The Yellow Wallpaper, and they called it a horror musical. It was a one-woman show, and in this article that I was reading, they really, really focused on the isolation and the fact that they thought this was just the perfect text and the perfect horror story to relate to audiences who were isolated during COVID-19. And I honestly just did not even think about that while reading The Yellow Wallpaper. I really didn't put that together with this story at all. Um, But I guess that makes sense. And I think particularly um, just thinking about how many Mothers were stuck with their children inside the house for so long um, with no assistance, with no choice but to do the thing. Um, The psychological impacts of that, I think we're going to be we're going to see those for, you know, the next few years. And so, yeah, I, I just thought that that was fascinating. I really didn't make that connection. So I'll share the link to that article, but I don't know. It's just something to think about. And I think a horror musical is also pretty fascinating. (laughs) So um, I think you can watch a couple of clips online. But my actual pick of the week, I really, I wanted to make this a pairing, um, but it fits well here. I think All's Well by Mona Awad is a really great pairing for The Yellow Wallpaper. This is a book that we both loved. Mm-hmm. I think that you read it in hardcover and I, I listened did. to the audio mm-hmm. and we really enjoyed both formats. The tone feels kind of similar to me here. It is creepy, but it's also it's very psychological. The main character is a theater professor who suffers from chronic pain and is really she really struggles with her doctors prescribing her things that don't work and telling her it's all in her head. And I just think there are a lot of connections that you can draw from All's Well to The Yellow Wallpaper. And I just think it's a fantastic book. And it's very, there's some Shakespeare infused. So the play All's Well That Ends Well is what this theater professor wants to produce. The kids want to put on Macbeth. So there are lots of fun Shakespeare references to pick up on, but I don't know that I would pair it with Shakespeare. I think it just works really well with the yellow wallpaper. So that's All's Well by Mona Awad. That is a great pick. I I love that pairing so much. All right, listeners. So we still have some really fun episodes coming up for you just because we said this was our last 
uh, discussion episode recording doesn't mean that we're going to be totally off the grid. You'll still get some novel pairings episodes in your feed. So please keep spreading the word about our podcast by sending your friends a link to your favorite episode or going ahead and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really make a big difference for us. To chat with our Classics Club over on Patreon, to go through our backlog of recorded classes that we have and our whole backlog of bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to join our community. We certainly never expect our Classics Club members to keep up with everything over there. That's why we record those classes and have those bonus episodes available even after the fact. So If you've been needing to get plugged in, now is a great time because we are on maternity leave and somewhat absent from that space, but you can get caught up on all of our backlogged content and then be ready for when we return. So if you want to be the first to know about our Patreon content and what's happening with the podcast, for now you can sign up for our newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. And again, if you want to get plugged in with Classics Club, join our great community over there. We have people talking about books in our Discord chat all the time, even with us away. You can go to patreon.com slash novelpairings. We also want to hear about your experience reading The Yellow Wallpaper. So share your review and your thoughts on Instagram and be sure to tag us at novelpairingspod. We also like to see when and where you're listening. So take a screenshot of this episode right now, share it in your story and tag us. We love to see it. And it is a great way to help new listeners find our show. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with a rerun of our episode on passing by Nella Larson. Just in time for you to refresh your memory before watching the new film adaptation. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.